0: Good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to read some verses in a few moments, but I want to say a few things first. The focus of my sermon today will be on the closest of human relationships, marriage, and the idea of cultivating God ordained oneness in marriage. And I think you'll notice by the title, god-ordained it's something that god wants but it's the idea of cultivating that because it's something that we need to cooperate with and participate in for it to happen i think there may be no more crucially practical or strenuously avoided topic than marriage that absolutely needs to be heard in the church today God has spoken universal truth that all people need to listen to. And even amongst professing Christians, there is a lot of confusion and misunderstanding and even fear as it relates to marriage. But the good thing is God's word is very clear on marriage. I am preaching on marriage today I am standing before you today As a very imperfect example of a married man But standing before you with the perfect word of God That is very clear on marriage Nonetheless, it's very tough to preach on The reason why is because you gather a group of people in 2015 To hear a sermon on marriage And there's a lot of things in play there is the issue of life stage where you're at in life with marriage some of you are married some of you are newly married some of you have been married a long time and some of you are not married never have been married or you have been married some of you are unmarried and hoping to be married someday some of you are unmarried and not hoping to be married someday Some of you are too young to be married Making eye contact here Some of you think you're too old To get married There's also the issue of experience Some of you are enjoying What you would consider Wonderful marriages Others of you are enduring By your own admission Horrible ones Some of you have had Amazingly positive role models As pertains to marriage Others have had horrendously negative ones some of you were married and are now either widowed or divorced or separated or remarried some of you were divorced as believers on biblical grounds some of you were divorced as believers for non-biblical reasons others were divorced and then remarried as unbelievers and and so on there's a lot of different life experiences that come into play when we when we contemplate marriage there's also the issue of understanding and the choices that we make some of you have a very biblical solid understanding of marriage others have a very unbiblical unstable view of marriage going along with that some of you are obeying the word of god in the power of the holy spirit And others of you are disobeying the word of God But no matter your age, your life stage, your experience, your level of understanding Or even the level of spiritual health and the condition you are in spiritually I mean this with all my heart God has something very significant to say to you today as it pertains to marriage I say this a lot that the Holy Spirit uses the word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. God wants to do something powerful in your life today on the topic of marriage. Now, before we dive in, I want to let you know where we've been recently in our preaching and where we're going. Two weeks ago, we finished a 36-part, verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Peter. And for the next three weeks, before we begin to look at the book of Acts, I plan to focus on some big themes that we saw in 1 Peter that warrant a closer look. Things that the Bible speaks of a lot. Today, marriage. Next week, sanctification. And then on June 7th, spiritual warfare. But today, we focus on the closest of human relationships— Marriage and the idea of cultivating God-ordained oneness. So please stand with me if you're able. I'm going to read Genesis 2. We're going to begin at verse 18 and go to verse 25. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 18. This is the word of God. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens. And to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed Lord God we we thank you for your perfect word we acknowledge Lord that we don't live in a perfect world And that we are grossly imperfect in our attempts to obey you and to live in ways that please you. But nonetheless, Lord, we thank you that your word is is inspired, inerrant, infallible, powerful. And Lord, we ask that you, as you have done again and again and again would powerfully change us by your word. Teach us, Lord God, that we might honor you. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. God has ordained that a husband and wife be one. That one man and one woman would come together in marriage and be one. In God's sight, they become one in their union. But what does that mean? And how can it be experienced? In 1 Peter, in the context of sanctification, he's already talked to us about How God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. How we believe in Him and and love Him. And he's talking about how God is making believers holy, how He is making believers more like Christ, conforming us to the image of Christ. And in the context of sanctification, God at work in the lives of believers to do this work of conforming us to Christ. He highlights several Key human roles and relationships. He highlights that of a citizen, and employee, and spouse. And in First Peter chapter three, verses one through seven, he addresses wives and husbands. If you remember back to when we looked th- looked through those verses, wives got six verses, and husbands got one. Unless any husband think that, well, we must need less help because we only got one, you'll be grossly mistaken. Husbands, you will spend your life contemplating the depths of God's grace in Christ and the beauty of your wife. You take that verse for your whole life. It, it could take you a lifetime to understand, to grasp, even to, to begin to practice. If you've been married a long time, you know what I'm saying. Angela and I have been married for 24 years, and I, I keep noticing that 1 Peter 3, 7 keeps coming back in my heart and, and realizing that if I don't live that, I'm not going to have a good marriage. I think what we need to realize, too, is that as with anything in the realm of sanctification... It cannot be done without God And God will not do it without us Regeneration and justification And salvation all happens Because of God's sovereign work It's very easy for us to think about Justification and and look back At the cross, at the shed blood of Christ At his extreme love and grace for us And and look back and, and revel in that And we should and it it's very easy for us to also look forward to glorification and say, "Wow, look is what is going to be in our lives when we are in a place with no sin and no sadness and no sorrow and no, no, no tears." But it's very tough for us to grapple with sanctification. I think what happens often is we think about justification. We love it as we should. We look forward with longing, anticipation for our glorification. But then we start thinking about sanctification, and things things get cloudy for us. The fog rolls in. We begin to get a little uncomfortable because this is where the rubber meets the road in our life. It's one thing to think about what God did in the past, it's another to think about what He's doing in the future. But when we think about the present, often we become very uncomfortable because it's about what we're really like at the epicenter of our lives. It's about the real you Not the bright and shiny you that comes to church on a Sunday morning, but the real you that dwells with your household So Peter is addressing wives and addressing husbands and there's problems being addressed quite simply it's disobedient self-centered husbands and wives who'd rather focus on themselves god is calling for love and understanding and it's good for us that we need the word of god to set us straight there are so many people with warped views of marriage by the way living in marriages they aren't willing to work hard at to make them work and then they read in the bible on marriage and they don't listen anymore That might be you today. You might say, you know what? I've thrown in the towel. I'm not listening anymore. I've resigned myself to endure a horrible existence. We get calloused hearts. So what I want us to do first is take a step back. Take a step back and say, what does the Bible say about marriage? First, we need to ask a question. Why marriage? What's God's purpose with it? Why do we have it, and how do you cultivate that oneness? And then I'll make some observations near the end of the sermon and give a few exhortations. So you can relax right now. I'm not going to hammer you. Yeah, you can just relax. We're just going to say, "What does the Bible say?" All right. We'll get to the hammering later. All right. So let's start at the beginning. We're going to be in Genesis two. And what we're going to see is that the marriage relationship is the first human institution established by God Genesis 2 And you take a running start on that in Genesis 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 and you see that God created Adam In his own image in the image of God And that the Lord God planted a garden to the east in Eden And he put the man whom he had formed in the garden And the garden was specifically designed, especially designed for Adam and for his needs and his gifting. And it's a huge reminder of how loving and gracious God is in his provision for his people. You think about the goodness of the home that God gave Adam, that he provided for him. Here is this, this Garden of Eden, a beautiful, lush Bountiful land situated on a river delta. Genesis 2.10 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Bountiful land with rich soil, and land spreading out far and wide, blanketed with, with beautiful orchards and delicious fruits, all growing in Adam's backyard. The surrounding land, a, a mixture of rich resources, gold and onyx and delium, aromatic gum, to be used for creativity and, and industry. Can you imagine a place? Just imagine with me for a moment, a place more beautiful than any you've ever visited. The most beautiful place that you've ever imagined, a landscape unspoiled by humanity, no smog. We, we Californians can't think about no smog. We drink smog every day. We wake up with it. No oil spills, no garbage dumps, no toxic waste. The land untainted by sin's curse. Adam's home, an amazing home. And we can only dream of it. It's like when you're going to go on vacation to a place that you've been longing to go for so long, and you're like, wow, I can't wait to see that place. Well, for us, we, we can only dream and wait eagerly or our heavenly home that god is preparing for us but back to the garden of eden there was a place that god gave him and there was only one restriction only one genesis two seventeen: from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die and god is making it very clear that man is a moral agent capable of, of obeying god's commands and he's making it very clear that when we disobey his commands that we break relationship with him. So why marriage? Because the next thing we see is marriage. Look at verse 18, Genesis two eighteen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The first thing you see about marriage and why marriage is that God intends a partnership a companionship, a mutual completing of one another. I will make a helper fit for him, literally suitable to, literally corresponding to. Adam and Eve were surely different, and Adam knew that right away, and that's why you could really translate what he said is, wow, this is awesome. God knew that that Adam needed Eve and and God perfectly provided for his need. When he was giving names to the animals, it said that for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. God knew what he was going to do, but Adam was realizing as he's naming the animals, there's, there's no one for me. There's no one corresponding to me. So God creates this, this partnership where the two might fit together perfectly, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. That Eve would be a suitable companion and Adam would be a suitable companion. Matthew Henry said it well. The woman was made out out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart. To be beloved. So there's this partnership that God is intending. That's why he creates marriage. It's not good for the man to be alone, God says. There's also something else, and you see it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. As soon as God creates man in his own image, and chapter 1 is a, is a, the first telling of creation, chapter 2 is a retelling of creation, giving special emphasis to Adam and Eve Genesis 1 27 says God created man in his own image In the image of God he created him Male and female he created them The first thing God does Is blesses them and then gives them a command And the command is Be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth And subdue it Every one of us You and I all Came into being In God's sovereign goodwill Through the union of a man and a woman Every one of us without fail You had a mother, you had a father Marriage is to be between a man and a woman One man, one woman And it is for procreation Having kids We love kids We love people We are people Some of us are still kids Some of us are Adults now And the whole age spectrum You look and you go We all came into the world The same way Well maybe the details of our birth Were a bit different But the way we came about The way we were conceived Under God's design Is that a man and a woman Came together And were fruitful and multiplied So Partnership And procreation And another one that you're really Going to need to go to 1 Corinthians 7 for Purity and protection. Number three, purity and protection. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is answering a question that had come to him. And you need to know a little bit about the background of of what's going on in Corinth. Marriage is in trouble today and marriage was in trouble then. And there were people back then who, who said, if you don't get married, you are disobeying God. The Jews primarily said that. They held marriage in very high esteem And they said you have to be married if you want to obey God Gentiles then said No if you want to honor God Remain single That's the only way to truly Please God And and both were out of balance And so Paul is answering this question Verse 1 Now concerning the matters which you wrote It is good for a man not to have Sexual relations with a woman Now God Had said be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it So Paul is not Going against that It's in the context Of gross immoralities In Corinth Where people were living animalistically They were living like animals Much like today Having sexual relationships with Whoever they wanted whenever they wanted But he said this in verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then he says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Almost all of the, the bad marriages that I have had the privilege of counseling biblically, when they come to me, they're not having normal physical intimacy in marriage because they're having so many other problems in marriage. But God has given marriage for partnership, for procreation, and for purity, for protection. And depriving is epidemic in marriage, which is why God says don't do that. And one more, a bit counterintuitive, but I believe it is very clear. And it's really rooted in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, God created man in his own image. The primary purpose for marriage is praise to God, to mirror God's image, to reflect His glory. When a man and a woman come together in marriage, with God at the center of the relationship, they're going to reflect His image. Imperfectly, but they will reflect His image. That the world will see in that relationship a representation of who God is and how He loves. Because we mirror God's perfect love to each other when we believe the best about each other and when we forgive one another in spite of their weaknesses and their faults. And if you're married today, you know that the person sitting next to you, your spouse, is is flawed, is sinful. One of the best titles for a marriage book that I've ever read is, is this, What'd You Expect? You married a sinner, and if you're if you're both believers, God is at work on both your hearts, conforming you to the image of Christ. Though you might get so dialed in to your spouse's faults that you can't see that marriage is meant for praise to God, and it's rooted in the fact that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. In fact, in the in the context of divorce Matthew chapter 19 verses 1-12 through there is a verse, verse 6 that I say at the end of every wedding that I am privileged to officiate here's how it goes you've heard it before those whom God has joined together let no one separate then we let them kiss then we say get out of here, go walk down the aisle When I was a kid, I would hear that at a wedding And think, yeah Someone shouldn't come in and drive a wedge Between these two, they're so much in love And as the years go on What I realized is The first application of that is that The two In the marriage that becomes one The husband and wife, they're the ones That break the marriages up We're not victims here We're we're perpetrators All of us It's a covenant, marriage is a covenant And divorce is allowed because of hardness of heart But but man is not to separate a marriage That's God's design and there's a reason Because it's a covenant between God and man Emotionally and physically and spiritually It is so much more than a piece of paper And by the way, if you're going through Or have been through horrendous pain As a result of marriage I think two things are probably true of you Number one This is very painful to hear And it pains me to know that But that's reality But number two And if you're a believer What you would stand up and say is People should follow God's design Marriage is a covenant with God and man In in the classic marriage ceremony That is so prevalent amongst evangelical Christians We say to the bride and groom we give them words we 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 turn to the bride and we say will you have this man to be your husband will you love him and honor him and in in duty and service and faith and tenderness to live together with him and cherish him according to the ordinances of god and in the bond of holy marriage and we say the same to the husband to the groom And, and guess what when they're at the wedding they're not speaking to each other at that point They're facing the the pastor and and in an essence before god. They're making a commitment In dependence upon god and for his praise and glory They are stating their intentions Some of you just recently got married. You know what i'm talking about others of you it was so long ago You're like did I say that? Yes, you did. We're holding you to it And by the way you, you see covenants everywhere in the bible There are horizontal ones um, between humans, between friends and nations. But the most prominent covenants in the Bible are vertical, between God and people. And what's interesting about the marriage relationship, what's very unique about it, is that it is both horizontal and vertical in its its covenantal makeup it is before god it is vertical but it is between two humans it is horizontal so the covenant made between a husband and a wife is done before god and therefore with god as well as with the spouse so you break faith with your spouse you break faith with god that's why in the marriage ceremony we also say something like this We have them say these things to each other. I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, so long as we both shall live. These are covenantal promises, and your covenant with God strengthens you to keep your covenant with one another. Marriage is the deepest of human covenants And it is meant For praise to God For praise to God I'm not sure if you've thought about that much But the ultimate purpose of marriage Is to put the covenant relationship Of Christ and his church on display It's why marriage exists Even people who have no knowledge of God Don't even realize What their marriage is pointing to It's pointing to Christ and the church Let's talk about cultivating oneness. Cultivating oneness. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now usually, in contemplating marriage, instead of oneness, we come face to face with our own selfishness, self-centeredness, proneness to look out just for ourselves primarily second corinthians 5 15 says that christ died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised ours is a media saturated and dominated society that portrays very destructive behaviors displays unrealistic situations leading to unrealistic expectations on the part of people entering into marriage or contemplating marriage but it's not just the media and the culture it's our own sinful hearts that imagine all sorts of evil you think about marriage and you can say very clearly that marriage is in trouble today because mankind insists on on considering himself sovereign insist on his own way to the exclusion of the revealed will of god and the objective word of god and you think about how bad it is today in marriage and i don't know if it's comforting it's just truth that back then marriage wasn't in such a great state either in corinth where paul was writing there were two opposing views again that People would say the only proper way to live as a Christian is to stay single Or people would say no you're disobeying God if you don't get married And there were there were basically four kinds of marriage in the first century First there was tent companionship Not what we're having at the family camp out later But tent companionship where you were actually a slave And then there was common law marriage which is basically living together without having any type of covenant relationship or commitment you can leave it anytime you want or there was also arranged marriage where you were literally sold or there was a fourth pattern that was prevalent which was the standard pattern we know today to people would get married under god in a covenantal relationship but in those days there was chaos just like there is today people doing whatever they wanted anytime they wanted with whomever they wanted But in marriage, we must mark this down well. God does not want us to gratify ourselves. He wants us to glorify him. In marriage, he wants you to be one flesh. He doesn't want you walking in the flesh. And to do that, you need to do what God has said to do. So in Genesis 2, let's go go through it and see what God has instructed As it relates to us and what we ought to do in marriage The first thing is that we ought to receive our spouse as a gift from God God's provision for your need With thankfulness with gratefulness in your heart you receive your spouse That is what Adam did when God brought Eve to him I think a lot of people have never received their spouses with thankfulness They think of their spouse not as a blessing but as a curse And maybe it didn't start right away on the first day of marriage, but maybe it did. I know of couples like this, and I am making eye contact, and it's not you. It's not you. Okay, there's no one in this room that I know of. Now, if you're listening on the internet, yes, maybe it's you. But you need to receive your spouse as a gift with thankfulness, with a grateful heart. Thank you, God, for meeting my need. You knew my need perfectly. You know my need better than I know my need. And so thank you for this gift. The second thing you need to do is leave your parents. And I don't mean just, you know, loading up the truck and, and moving out and going to a different location, though you do need to do that. But leave your parents. It means to cut the umbilical cord of dependency and allegiance. But you still honor them. I've known too many young couples who get married and say, I don't care what my parents say anymore, I'm free. They're breaking the fifth command that still stands. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother, which the first, the first in application of that is honor your aging parents and bless them. So leaving your parents doesn't absolve you of the fifth command, responsibility, but you must un- cut the umbilical cord of allegiance and dependency. Some people have never done that. They're still calling Mommy and Daddy for advice. I think Mom and Dad are still doing all the, all the uh, bill paying and the, and the laundry and what have you. and, and there's just something wrong with that picture. Well, no, it's great for your parents to help you out, but not if your first allegiance and dependency is now on them, because then you're not becoming one with your spouse. Because the next thing you're supposed to do is cleave to your spouse literally be joined to hold to your spouse because your marriage relationship is your new and primary responsibility that supersedes all other relationships present and future by the way to be joined to to cleave to means to stick to like glue we're talking gorilla glue here we're talking crazy glue we're talking like when your fingers get stuck together and you can't get them apart better than that more than that Stick to like glue What it means is Divorce is not to be an option on your mind Yes it happens And it happens because of hardness of heart But it's not something that you go in saying Well if it doesn't work out we'll do that If the current situation on earth If up to mankind Would spell doom for the institution of marriage Cleave means to be a covenant commitment Not a casual contract Let me ask you What's the current divorce rate as you know it just yell it out current divorce rate well the the thing i heard the most you're not in agreement by the way um, is 50 percent and that isn't true by the way the guy that made that up originally used bad math about 70 percent i think you'd be glad to know this about 70 percent of marriages that began in the 1990s reached their 15th anniversary up, rough, up from roughly 65% of those that began in the 70s and 80s. So things are getting better for marriage. Couples who got married in the 2000s are divorcing at lower rates. But divorce is still rampant. One is bad, right? We, 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 we know what it causes. We know what it does to us. You can quote all the statistics you want, but the numbers reveal first and foremost that there are a lot of disobedient professing Christians. People say they're Christians and they're not considering God's word binding over their lives. They don't live in a, with a healthy fear of God and a respect and a reverence for God. So they don't receive, they don't leave, and they don't cleave. So they can't do what God says comes next become one flesh. Become one flesh. What does that mean? It's not just physical, it's the idea of you become one flesh by following God's instructions. Via the process of receiving, leaving, and cleaving. Becoming one is a summary statement of that process of receiving, leaving, and cleaving. It means you're being and you're doing what God intends, you're wanting to please God and so that you could experience the blessed oneness that God ordains. Lewis Evans says, The one flesh in marriage is not just a physical phenomena, but a uniting of the totality of two personalities. The application of becoming one flesh via receiving, leaving, and cleaving is seen in Paul's instructions to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, very well-known passage. It's up there. You can read it. But I want to take you to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And I have a reason for it. It's a summary because Paul says in Colossians three, eighteen and nineteen, in nineteen words, by the way, what he says in Ephesians five, twenty two through thirty three, in two hundred words. Let's let's read it. Colossians three, verse eighteen. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Nineteen, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Can I hear Amen? That's a summary statement of what Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 says. Wives are to voluntarily submit to their husband's leadership. And submission means she honors and affirms her husband's God-given leadership and helps him fulfill his role by voluntarily submitting to that leadership. And a woman who fears God has no trouble submitting under God. There is a role distinction, though, between men and women, in the marriage relationship and expects a man to assume a role of leadership that Paul carefully qualifies. Here's what he says. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So parallel to his wife's duty is a husband's duty to sacrificially love his wife. Not merely affectionate feelings, not merely physical attraction, but Unceasing care and loving concern for her entire well-being that shows itself in sacrificial service. All of us men, we hear this and we think, wow, we're toast. (laughs) How far we fall short. We are to mirror Christ's love for the church that led him to a bloody cross. A husband is to seek to lead by serving not embittered against his wife in thought, word, or deed. So that's how you cultivate oneness. You receive your spouse, you leave your parents, you cleave to your spouse. And in that process, you become one flesh. Marriage is the institution. Husband and wife are the roles, and love and respect is the calling. And I think we get the fact that we're to receive and leave and cleave. It has to do with obedience. But I also think that when it comes to being one, Things get confusing to us and our understanding is clouded. And how could it be that a married couple is one? You know, is there some kind of secret code that I'm not getting? Is there a secret handshake I'm supposed to know? And I want to boil it down to one word for you. Five letters. It's very simple. What does it mean to be one? Unity. Unity. To be one means that you're unified as a couple. There's no secret code. It takes a lot of hard work, but there's no secret handshake. You're one, and that means you're unified. Sheldon Van Auken wrote a book called A Severe Mercy, and in it he, he chronicled how he and his wife recognized that couples would get married and then they would grow separate. They, they called it creeping separateness, where you just get to the point where you just don't realize how far you've wandered away from each other. I want you to think about this for a moment. Is there anyone else in the Bible that's, that's said to be one besides married couples? Anyone else in the Bible? How about God himself? The Lord God is one. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God is, is a unity perfectly unified in and of himself three in one working for his sovereign good purposes in every place in all times anyone else in scripture called one the church jesus prays in john 17 that the church would be one even as he and the father and the spirit are one god is perfectly one the church and marriage are imperfectly one but it's a, it's a unity that God is talking about. Everyone needs to hear this. If you have a bad marriage, you need Jesus' help. You have a good marriage, you need Jesus' help, so you're not getting prideful and self-sufficient. But as I, as I begin to bring this to a close and bring a, the trajectory down to the, to, the, to the runway here, I need to, to be very pointed to a group of people here And it's not those with a great marriage You can just tune out The 10% of you that have a great marriage Just relax You can go if you want And the 10% of you that have horrible marriages I'm not talking to you right now either You you just need a lot of help I want to talk about the 80%ers Everybody in between I want want that group to listen up The the 80% uh, who who are just like Yeah, we're doing good We're doing fine Those in the middle The the majority in the middle Is is who I want to speak to right now Because I believe that you need a new vision For what God intends First in your own heart and then in your marriage Now here's my question for you I got a question for you Here it is How much poison Is okay In your marriage How much poison is okay In your marriage now, the, the CDC and the FDA and anyone else who goes by letters for their name, they have come up with things regarding our food and our drink. I'm not sure if you know this. I'm sorry that I might ruin your lunch. But your burrito is 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 allowed to have a certain number of contaminants in it. Your cupcake, your water is allowed to have a certain number of contaminants in it because they're like, hey, it won't kill you. So there can be maggots and... And uh, bug pieces And worms and other things In your food and your drink That, and you should just say Praise God that we have these FDA's and CDC's and what have you Because other countries don't And they say, you know It can go up to a certain level Okay, The, the Twinkies can have this much You know, arsenic Or whatever there's in there You know, there's arsenic in your water the question is how much poison is allowable and there's a limit. But see, marriage isn't regulated like that. So my question to you is, how much poison are you okay with? It's like the way we view movies, you know, well there was only this many sex scenes and there was only this many cuss words because I'm okay with that in my life. I'm okay with that number. Really? Should we be okay with any amount of Of evil in our life? Shouldn't we be wanting to confess it and repent of it and get rid of it? If we think we can play around with sin or even pretend like it doesn't affect us, we're in for a very rude awakening. Let's talk about some poisonous unity killers, shall we? Marriage killing lies. Here's one I'm a victim, I'm a martyr. I am so tired of the victimhood mentality in marriage, whether it's my attitude or someone else's. God has ordained marriage, and you've got to decide if you're going to cultivate that no matter what. You're not a victim. In Christ, you're to be a victor and more than a conqueror through him who loves you. So whether you're single, married, divorced, you're not a victim. Yes, you may have been victimized, and yes, someone perpetrated evil against you, but you also have responsibilities to recognize your sin Everyone who comes to to me for marriage help when things are going really bad or pointing the finger at each other, just like Adam pointing the finger at Eve. Hey, God, I'm gonna blame you, the woman you gave me. Oh, here's one. The I deserve to be happy worldview. I have people telling me this all the time. Well, I know what you told me is from the Bible, but I've got three other people telling me otherwise, and I'm going with them because what you're saying is too hard. Here's one. God is unfair God doesn't know what he's doing He doesn't know what I'm suffering What a lie That's the person who is in effect Is saying I'm God And I know better than God By the way uh, Before you leave Let me give you a recipe For a horrible marriage You want to destroy unity? Here's what you do Number one Think of yourself first Use I, me, and mine As often as you can Especially with regard to money And make every effort To get your needs met And make unfair judgments. Assume the worst rather than the best and refuse as many reasonable requests as possible. Live as separately as you can and you will have a horrible marriage. Now, instead, you might want this recipe. Here we go. Love Jesus more than anyone or anything and fulfill your servant role, men, to sacrifice and women to submit and love your spouse and meet their needs and be patient as God works on their heart as he works on yours. And one more. Forget about yourself. See, when Jesus said, you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. So many people think their spouse is their cross. No. The cross is what you'd die to self on. Die to yourself. Deny yourself. Die to yourself and follow Jesus. These are based on God-ordained realities, these truths, and so I want to end by exhorting you, imploring you, first believe the gospel. I have to, because I'm a warped human being. I've got to believe the gospel and find my identity in Christ. It's the counterintuitive message of the gospel that's applied to our lives and our hearts, especially our marriage, that we know, we are deeply aware of our sinfulness and our deep gratitude for God's grace in Christ. That He shed his blood in our place and granted us eternal life. That gives me great incentive to seek what is best for my marriage. You've got to make the gospel real. There is the power and the glory and the beauty of the gospel when you are aware of your own sin. You need for a savior. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. How does peace change your perspective? The peace of Christ leads you to repent and confess and admit your sin. Your sin's not theirs. And to reconcile, to forcefully forgive. Also, I exhort you to shock the world and live in the power of Christ. Women, wives can't can't submissively respect and husbands Husbands can't Sacrificially love Without the power of Christ Because it doesn't Come naturally to us It's terrifying work It's quite shocking To the world by the way When they see A man Who sacrificially Loves his wife No matter what And a woman Who submissively Respects her husband No matter what And so many Professed Christians Do not enjoy Their marriage They endure their marriage even though it is less than ideal they let the poison just linger let me just say you're not alone and there is healing available in christ through his spirit and by his word and with his church one more thing i will say and then we'll be done oh by the way you know that sacrificial love and um and and submission are crazy thoughts to the world right well you also know that they're crazy thoughts to a lot of christians because a lot of christians don't have biblical thoughts in a biblical worldview last thing i'll say is that you need to enjoy your marriage if you're married you need to enjoy it and you need to long for christ's return in fact if you're single enjoy your singleness enjoy your marriage or your singleness enjoy the state of life God has put you in right now say I'm content and and long for Christ's return you should love Jesus the most and live for his glory and long for his return this life is not all there is this is the temporary earthbound life and you are if you're married you're in a temporary earthbound marriage if you're single you're in a temporary earthbound singleness But that pictures a, your marriage, if your marriage pictures a greater, eternal marriage. You know the earthly marriage starts with a ceremony, then we have a party, right? Well, the heavenly marriage ends with a feast. Revelation 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the best wedding ever. It's the most glorious marriage imaginable. That's our hope in Christ. See, Jesus went to the cross That we would carry ours and deny ourselves And follow him It's very interesting about this idea of unity And oneness I looked up the Hebrew word and I kept looking it up because I was kind of shocked Like wait a minute that's really what it means It comes from a root That also means To proclaim good news I think it's very Significant that the root for the one flesh Is the same root for Proclaiming good news There's a sense of beauty, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We think that unity is the absence of strife, but it is also the presence of blessing. And when we do what pleases God, we experience his blessing. Lord God, thank you that in the gospel sinners go free. And Lord, thank you that In marriage Sinners are forgiven Lord so many times in marriage We want someone to pay But we know from the gospel That Jesus paid our debt So Lord grant us by your grace In marriage to allow the payment Jesus made to pay all debts Not to downplay What anyone has done But to upplay the healing effects Of what Christ has done at the cross Lord Fix the laser beam on our hearts because we are so blind to our own sin. We got a, a log in our eye, Lord. Let's not be focused on the speck in someone else's. Lord, unify us. Let your peace rule in our hearts. And we will thank you in Christ's name. Amen.